What started with a virus so small, your eyes couldn't see it. This is about providing a future for humanity. Wir schaffen das. The Commission has decided to fine Google 4.34 billion euros. Questo piano è, è l'occasione della vita. This is Europe's man on the moon moment. We are innovating here and we hope that you like it. L'Europe, d'une force commune d'intervention. Long live Europa. Long live Europe. Vive l'Europe. Welcome to Europe Calling, a series of podcasts brought to you by the European Commission looking at the politics and policies of the Union today. With me, Paul Anderson. And me, Stephen Jones. In our two previous episodes, we focused on the health and economic afterburn of COVID, as well as the strategic plan to boost industry in Europe and improve its global competitiveness. Today, we're focusing on the vast jobs and social welfare dimension. How to use this terrible pandemic to rethink the workplace, jobs market and social welfare provisions. How to address youth unemployment, which at more than 30% in some Mediterranean countries is nothing short of chronic. For this episode, I've been to one of those countries, Paul, Italy and the island of Sardinia, exploring the torn employment and social fabric of what many outsiders see simply as a sun-drenched holiday paradise. We'll hear from you there shortly, Stephen, but steering us through all these issues on the wider EU level is our key guest today, Nicola Schmidt, European Commissioner for Jobs and Social Rights from Luxembourg. His portfolio encompasses many policy sectors that are fundamental to the EU's mission and vision. Freedom of movement, mutual recognition of qualifications, skills and workplace improvement, and cushioning the more detrimental effects of globalisation, like job loss among them. A very warm welcome, Commissioner Schmidt, from me and Stephen, and to you, our listeners. It's a great pleasure to be be here, to be with you, and uh, hopefully to be able to answer your questions. (laughs) Uh, We hope so too, Commissioner. We hope so too. And with a critical ear and some questions of his own, we welcome to the studio also Panayotis Chassimikhail, a board member of the European Youth Forum. Thank you very much for the invitation and happy to be here. We're also going to be looking at the ongoing EU-wide debate on the future of Europe. But first, to the main issue at hand, the condition of Europe's social and employment safety net and the man in charge of the portfolio, Commissioner Nicola Schmidt. Commissioner Schmidt, it's often said that COVID represents an opportunity to rethink the world of work, to embrace workplace and social innovations. What changes do you foresee after this pandemic and of the pathways to realising that? Well, I think that the COVID-19 has increased the awareness that health and safety at the workplace is of utmost importance. If you are not able to protect workers against all kinds of threats coming from uh, illnesses like COVID-19 or other uh, dangerous substances, you put at risk, uh, uh, finally, not only the life of workers, but in a way, our values, what work represents. Now the Commission has come out with a new strategic framework on health and safety. And uh, certainly this framework also absolutely takes into account the new dangers, the new risks like the pandemic, but also uh, mental uh, health risks which uh, develop very fast. This sounds like a compelling exercise in future-proofing or at least future-improving, but it's clear people's minds are on the now and getting back to normal as soon as possible. For many people, they want business as usual. I think a return to 
normal or some kind of new normal, in my view, absolutely impossible. Because it's not just about the COVID-19. It's about uh, an enormous, huge change in our in our society, in our economies due to uh, technological change, digitalization, our, our obligation uh, to respond to climate change. So talking about a new normal would say that finally we haven't learned the lessons. Okay, let's look wider now at the power dynamics driving the change that you speak of. The EU has a secondary role to member states in social welfare provision and in the jobs market. Yet, it's an area where the expectations of citizens in the EU's capacity to deliver change are particularly high. In fact, just before the Porto Social Summit in May, around half of member states staked out their sovereign territory, reminding you that social policy is their prerogative, not yours. So how do you reconcile that imbalance in power and capacity to act on a European level? It's a shared competence. That means that the union intervenes there where certain aspects have a broader context, have a trans-border context, and therefore it is important to intervene. We have to work with member states to have this stronger uh, social convergence. And in that sense, the letter you referred to was not shocking for me. It was just reminding about the the legal, but also uh, the rather concrete political situation we have in Europe. And I, at least personally, would not like to change. Yes, some examples of the social convergence that you speak of in action could be, could it not, the European Child Guarantee with its minimal provisions for children on things like housing, education and health care. It could be a whole range of up and reskilling activities for the new work age we're in. Or it could be the European Globalisation Fund providing assistance for workers displaced due to restructuring because of globalisation. There are many examples when we talk about economic policy, when we are talking about fiscal policy, this might have consequences for investment in social infrastructure, in fields like health policy, education and so on. It is very important always to have a good assessment of the social impact of our decisions because these decisions at the end impact people's personal lives. Thank you very much. Well, listening to all of this is Paneotis Chatsi-Mikhail. You're a board member of the European Youth Forum, you're from Cyprus, and you have particular experience in inclusivity and education. Panagiotis, what are your organisation's fears, hopes and demands for young people as labour markets open up again across Europe? One of the fears we have is seeing history repeat itself. Many young people like me still remember the previous financial crisis and how youth ended up paying a high price. In many ways, the reason why young people are being so affected by COVID-19 crisis is because over the past 10 years or so, our rights haven't been as should at the center of policymaking. We saw a race to the bottom in terms of labor legislation, leading us into precarity and vicious cycles of temporary contract. We normalize low quality or even unpaid internships as key stepping stones to enter labor market without realizing that we were damaging young people's future prospects and change and chances to become independent. So the fear is that we will see the same soft uh, sort of approaches to youth now as it was done before on the sake of stimulating employment in the short run. 
Thanks very much, Panagiotis. A clear case there. Now's your chance to put a point or a question, or both, to Commissioner Schmidt directly. One of the things that this pandemic showed us is how struggles in the areas of employment and education and mental health are interconnected and mutually reinforcing. How does the European Commission plan to address the mental health impact of this crisis, particularly in the framework of employment uh, policies? Well, Commissioner, you were nodding your head a lot there. What's your response to that point and to other issues Panayotis has raised? I fully agree with the comments uh, which have been made. But I have to say that lessons have been learned from the previous crisis. The reaction was not the same as after the financial crisis, especially in uh, certain southern countries where finally the young generations were in a way sacrificed to the uh, different economic and, and financial measures. This time it's quite different. We developed a very huge program to invest into jobs, into education, into all kinds of support, into transformation also of our economy. So that's the big difference. Nevertheless, I understand that uh, there is a lot of anxiety and concern uh, among the young generation. It's become a bit of a cliché, would you agree, that the young generation that you speak of is now being labelled as the lost generation? I do not want to hear about the new lost generation. I do not want a new desperate generation because of what you described, also the psychological impact on the young. So I think first, the labor market is key, but education is key. We cannot recover the time which might have been lost uh, due to the pandemic, but we have to make sure that the young who have suffered a lot from the pandemic, especially also in their educational path, uh, can recover as, as well as possible this time. The second one is on the labor market of the post-pandemic. It cannot be the prospect of the young to be told, well, accept any job, even if it's for a few days, even if there is no security going with it, even if there is no social protection going with it, just take it because there's no other way. I think this is not an approach. So what, Commissioner, is the way out of a system that has young people locked in a stranglehold, evidently powerless to change the status quo? I look at that with some optimism because in Porto Conclusion, there's a very strong commitment for the young. There is clearly said that the young are a priority because they are not just our future. They are also our present. And therefore, I think now we have to align our policies to the commitments that were taken. And here, labor market policies are key. And uh, we have to bring in a bit more security in young people's life. Precariousness is not a perspective which we can accept. And I could imagine that at one stage in a quite near future, we sit together, social partners, business, young people, governments, uh, those who are responsible for labor market policies, and we see how can we change this? How can we commit to a different approach? Commissioner Schmidt and Panagiotis, we're heading south now to the Mediterranean and the Italian paradise island of Sardinia. Well, somebody's got to go. And that lucky somebody is you, Stephen, where I gather you've been posing the question, paradise? What paradise? 
Yes, Paul, the challenge of youth unemployment and all the social problems associated with it are especially acute in peripheral areas of the European Union, like this one. Here, for most of the year, the goats and sheep outnumber the people, at least until the tourist season reaches its crescendo as it is now. Work here is usually seasonal, precarious, poorly paid, and as the Italians say, in nero, the black economy, untaxed and unregulated. In communities like this one, the church is the glue keeping lives and livelihoods together. So it seemed the right place for me to find out more about the situation here. I'm Alessandro Corso, a parish priest of the Catholic Church in San Teodoro in the northwest of Sardinia. I'm 44 years old and I have been a parish priest for five years in this place. The greatest difficulty in this region in particular, but in all the coastal areas of Sardinia, is their dependence on tourism, which presents a big problem because people only work four months of the year and the rest of the time they have nothing to do. The regional and municipal authorities serve criticism here because instead of proposing other activities such as studying or cultural activities of this kind, people are left with nothing to do. The reason for these difficulties can be found in various social situations, such as the ever-increasing number of separations and divorces, social poverty, and above all, the use difficulties that are always caused by families, but also what I call the easy ways out, in which they make money with less effort, and here we're talking about the mafia drugs and delinquency in general. So how are the social consequences of the economic precarity many people are living through here playing out and what solutions are to hand? Most young people today do not even want to study, but they are people who are 30 years old, 40 years old, who have degrees but do not have work. They want to create businesses and they go to present them to the municipality or the region, but they take years to be approved. What then happens makes sense. The young person in question falls apart, becomes depressed and abandons the project. Here in Italy there is a lot of bureaucracy and this, I think, is caused by the lack of commitment on the part of those with responsibility in this area. There is a lot of demotivation and subsequently a lot of depression due to this way of working. Instead, what should happen and what could happen is that the regional authorities in Sardinia should think of tourism as an annual economy and should offer services all year round for tourists because Sardinia can offer tourism all year round. As for Italy's share, Sardinia's share of the 750 billion euro next generation EU funding instrument, what are your feelings about how that can best be deployed? There is insufficient information. I know that there are huge opportunities that Europe provides economically, but little information as if Europe wants to hide what it wants to give. And then the money, where is it going? So there is not even good information about the money that is available. Thanks, Don Alessandro. Challenges abound at regional, national and European level. And if young people are asking what difference Europe is making to their lives, it's possibly as much a rhetorical question as one to which they're looking for an answer. But perhaps Commissioner Schmidt has some answers. We have seen uh, that... Uh 
the impact of the crisis of uh, uh, the economic crisis as a consequence of the pandemic uh, is very different from one region to another. And talking about Sardinia, this island has been impacted a lot because it is mainly a tourist destination. This uh, is something we, which needed European solidarity because uh, uh, without European solidarity, we would have some kind of dislocation of Europe. Thank you, Commissioner, for that. Uh, this is where, as we draw to a close, Paul and I invite you to answer on issues you'd probably like to spend longer on, but there isn't time. So please, shoot from the hip. Your fellow Luxembourgeois Jean-Claude Juncker called the commission he led between 2014 and 2019 the Last Chance Commission. Two years on from that, has the Last Chance Saloon closed for a new social Europe? Well, I think talking about the Last Chance is always... Uh, well, a formula, but it's not the reality. And I think we, we seize the new chance. So I do not agree. What's a well-chosen word of advice to young people? I think it's more an encouragement than an advice. I want to tell them we want to build back better together with you. That's what we have to do. This is a commitment. It's not just an advice. It's a commitment. If you could pass a directive tomorrow at European level, what would Schmidt's directive be? It's very obvious after the discussion we had and also after listening our friend from Cyprus. Uh, giving the young generations, again, the feeling of security, fighting precariousness and giving each one of them good opportunities in their job, but also in the way they can organise their life. Thank you very much, Commissioner Schmidt. Paul. Thanks a lot, Stephen. We'll turn now to the Conference on the Future of Europe. In particular, the preliminary public consultation currently underway on what it should be and how, in order to stay relevant, the EU should change. Let's hear from two people with their own perspectives. Michel Barnier, former EU Brexit negotiator. But first to you, Panayotis, what's your take? This conference is an opportunity to push for the changes we want to see but also to strengthen the enthusiasm for the current and new generations of young people for the European project. But to achieve this, the conference must be an ambitious process and young people to be meaningfully included as well be the ones who will bear the consequences of the decisions made at this conference in the future. And here's Michel Barnier's take. I caught up with him in central France recently, promoting his book on the inside track of the Brexit negotiations. What does he want and expect from this process? I find very important in the serious moment in which we are after the Brexit and especially after the Covid crisis, which created many of suffering, a lot of damage from illness to death also, and loneliness. For me, the question arises, there is a lot of concern, a lot of risk in our societies, and all of this can backfire on Europe as we have seen it with Brexit. So I find it very important that we take the time for a public debate and an invitation to all citizens to express themselves on what we are doing together, what we must do together. So they are on the major issues of European sovereignty, on digital autonomy, on peace, on democracy and values. There are a lot of questions that arise and where is the right level to act? Do we have to play at the national, regional level or do we have to act at the common level together? Mr Barnier, in view of the populist trend in Europe at the
the moment, do you believe this process can change anything? Can it influence the views of people? There is a lot of social anger, there's a lot of worry. It is not the meaning of this consultation to say everything that we have done is great and we will continue and you must understand. No, we have to listen to the citizens and by listening to them we will see that there are misunderstandings, expectations in particular for Europe to give itself the means of collective actions in the field of industry, the protection of frontiers, there's naivety in the field of commerce and culture, young people, Erasmus at the heart of the European project. So it's a matter of making it work both ways. Of course, at the top, we have to say what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and from the bottom of the critics and listening and listening to the citizens. I think it's very important. Michel Barnier there. A quick reminder to listeners before we come to you, Commissioner Schmidt, that you can join this process yourselves online. Just go to futureu.europa.eu. That's future, F-U-T-U-R-E-U, .europa.eu. Then pick your language and decide whether you want to follow an event, hold an event, or just leave an idea under a range of topics. OK, so, Commissioner, you've heard those clips, and there's plenty there to add, no doubt, from your side. We have heard uh, a lot of criticism Uh, addressed to Europe uh, in a quite unjustified way. Uh, I think finally, uh, thanks to uh, the European Union, uh, we were able to um, master the worst sides of this crisis better than in most of uh, parts of in the world. And uh, now this shows how Europe can act, and uh, it acts in the interest of its citizen. And this is a feeling which is sometimes not real, which is not felt by our citizens. Although, and you have mentioned it, uh, citizens have high expectation also in the social field towards the European Union. And now we have to show that we want to listen what uh, they expect from Europe. You were part of this process previously, or at least a similar process, the Convention on the Future of Europe, about 20 years ago or so, and that produced the draft European Constitution, which was then rejected by voters in referenda in France and then the Netherlands. Since then, we've had Brexit, we've had a rise in populism in Europe. So how is this conference going to be different from that convention? I was a member of the convention, you know, uh, and I thought at that time that this was a great moment, that whole Europe was watching what we were doing. And finally, it was a mistake because uh, uh, not many people were really following what uh, the discussions were. Therefore, there is a big effort to be made from all of us to listen to the concerns. You can do it on platforms, and that's the way how we have to do it. But it's not enough. We have to go uh, in the countryside, in the cities, in places where young people are suffering or putting a lot of questions and open this broad discussion. It's time now to put it into practice. A call to action to get out there among the people. And what better place to start than at the beginning of the long European summer break? And what better place to conclude this, our third podcast, looking at the social and jobs challenges ahead. Many thanks, Commissioner Nicola Schmidt, for joining us today. Thank you very much for this exchange of views. Also, Panagiotis Chati Michal, board member of the European Youth Forum. Thank you very much, and I truly appreciate that uh, you make sure that youth is being heard and engaged. 
And to our other guests, Michel Barnier and Don Alessandro Cossu in San Teodoro in Sardinia. And to you for listening. This has been Europe Calling. We hope you've enjoyed tuning in to us and that it's given plenty of food for thought as hitherto quiet beaches, forests, cities, towns and villages across this great continent beckon us all. And don't forget, you can re-listen and share these podcasts via our social media platforms. In the meantime, enjoy the break. It's goodbye from me, Stephen Jones. And from me, Paul Anderson, take good care and goodbye. What started with a virus so small your eyes couldn't see it? This is about... Providing a future for humanity. Wir schaffen das. The Commission has decided to fine Google 4.34 billion euros. Questo piano è l'occasione della vita. This is Europe's man on the moon moment. We are innovating here and we hope that you like it. L'Europe, une force commune d'intervention. Long live Europe. Long live Europe. Vive l'Europe. 